Good morning. So if any of you know me very well, you know that I am a sucker for stories, especially immersive stories. You maybe could guess that my favorite film and favorite novel is the best story of all time, besides the Bible. Lord of the Rings, duh. Um, It's the greatest. Um, And I love it because of the story, not just because fiction and fantasy is cool. I also, one of my favorite TV shows of all time is Lost. And for all of you Lost haters out there, because I know you're out there, just move past season two to season three and then give me a call and tell me what you think. It's an incredible story. And I'm also, this may or may not surprise you, I'm a massive nerd, and I love video games. And the reason I love video games is because the stories. I like video games that immerse me in story, where it makes me part of it. I'm a sucker for stories. But see, stories aren't anything without the details, right? Eugene Peterson, he's a a pastor and a theologian that I highly, highly respect. He says this, names are important. They identify particular places and things. They give meaning. They keep us from generalities. They keep us from abstraction. Generalities and abstraction are useful in their own right, but we need names to give meaning, purpose, perspective, and to identify abstract words. Ernest Hemingway, he he once wrote, I was always embarrassed by the words sacred, glorious, and sacrifice, and in in the expression, in vain. Abstract words such as glory, honor, courage, or hallow were obscene. Besides the concrete names of villages, the numbers of roads, the names of rivers, the numbers of regiments and dates. Details matter to story. You know, I say the words service, community, worship, generosity, charity, care. And what immediately do you think of? Maybe for some of us, these words are not completely obscure or abstract. Maybe they have meaning. Maybe they're rooted in our minds because of names and details that give them meaning. But I think if we're honest with ourselves, sometimes these big words that we use a lot, like worship, community, service, generosity, charity, care, Christ-likeness, fill in the blank, they're obscure because we often don't have names and specific details to identify with them. For instance, if I tell you, if I say the word love, Almost everyone in this room understands what the word love means. The reason is you have details with it. You have names. Christ died for our sins. That's love. Giving your life for another. Sacrifice. That's love. Love is the name of your spouse, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your child, your friend, your family member. Love has names, has details, and so we understand it, at least in part, And the narrative today that we're looking at in 1 Samuel 30, closing up this book in 30 and 31, it stands as a name, a person and a place that will help us to identify with the often obscure words of generosity, charity, and care. If you were with us last week in 1 Samuel 29, you know what happened. David and his 600 men went off on a military mission and they went to do battle against Israel, or so it seemed. They, went, they were with the Philistines, and the Philistines are about to fight Saul and his army. And the Philistine rulers do not trust David being there, because he's an Israelite, and he's their enemy. And so they don't know his purpose, they don't know why he's there, and they don't trust him, so they send him back. And he heads back to his home, Ziklag. And this is where we pick up the story today, a story that begins with disaster. 
So David and his men were off. They were out on a military mission, and they left the village, their home, Ziklag, unprotected. There was a band of Amalekites raiding around in the surrounding areas. These are longtime enemies of Israel. And they stumble upon this village, and they look in, and they notice there's no men. They're gone, and they see opportunity. And so these raiders come in, and they raid the village. They take all the women, all the children, every living soul, and everything they've accumulated over the years, all of their treasure, all of their plunder, wipe it desolate, and then they light the houses on fire and leave it smoldering in their wake. Now David and his men are returning, and you can imagine what they're thinking. They're so amazed by God's grace, where he's kept them out of a really sticky situation. Do we fight the Philistines? Do we fight Israel? We're going to go to war. Most of us are probably going to die, whichever one we choose, and feel guilty and different side of it. It's going to be a whole mess, and God removes them from that, and he gives them grace and sends them home. So they're coming home. They're excited. They're anticipating kissing their wife and hugging their kids, and their kids running up and climbing up their legs and saying, Dad's home, and he's safe, having a hot meal, having a comfortable bed. And as they're walking home, they see smoke on the horizon. And they know it's in the direction that they're going. They know it's in the direction of Ziklag, but they don't assume that it's coming from there, unless maybe they built a big bonfire and they got s'mores ready for when they get home. Who knows? So they're, they're talking amongst themselves and they're saying, is that, there's no way, that couldn't be Ziklag, right? They get closer and closer. And now the speed at which they're moving is increasing because they're beginning to realize that it is coming from Ziklag. And someone yells out, we need to run. Like, we, we need to get there. They take off and they run. They peel over the hill and they see down below the entire village burning and no one. So they run in. They're probably praying and hoping that they're not going to see their loved ones burned or dead or suffering. And they run in. They're peering in homes as they're on fire and they're running around the village and there's no one there. Everyone's gone. Everything's gone. And imagine what comes into their head. How could God allow this to happen? An all-loving, all-powerful God, innocent women and children, totally gone without a trace? Really? I mean, this is not what we signed up for. This is not what we expected. And they know full well what happens to captives, what happens to slaves. A sickness begins to well up in the stomach of these men as they imagine and, and think and try to keep it from their brain the way their wives are treated, what their children will see, what they'll face. And this catastrophe begins to spread, and it wipes away any spiritual progress that these men have made over the years. And it turns to anger. And they can blame God, but they need something tangible to take their revenge out on, so what do they do? They look to David. They look to their leader, and they say, this is your fault. Yeah, you've done a great things for us over the years. It's been great. It's been a good ride, but we did not sign up for this. This is not okay, and we need someone to take, to take responsibility for this, and it's going to be you. And so they begin to talk, and they begin to decide and devise a plan. They're going to stone David to death, their leader. And so that's the plan. Catastrophe brings out the worst in these men. But see, catastrophe brings out the best in David. If you read the story in your personal worship, you know this. David, in the midst of the same emotions, the same reaction, confusion, anger, his family was taken, and now his men who he loves have turned on him. What does David do? 
It says he turns to God. And specifically, it says, David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. David, in the midst of catastrophe, in the midst of grief and anger and disappointment, confusion, he turns to God. He goes to his quote-unquote pastor, A.B.A. Thar, and asks him for counsel. He prays and he worships. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's incredible, right? In the midst of catastrophe and of losing everything, David turns to God and seeks him for a plan, and God gives him a plan. And the plan is that God is going to help lead David to rescue these people who have been taken from him. And so David comes back, and the men are most likely picking up their stones, and they're about to get ready to stone David. And David gives this plea. He asks them, one last time, trust me. That last ounce of strength and faith that you have, grab onto it and trust me. God has given me a plan. I know your plan is to stone me right now, but trust me. Come with me one more time. Let's go get our families. So they set out. They're exhausted. They're tired. I mean, they've just come back from battle, and they've come all the way home. They've taken no break. They're emotionally exhausted, spiritually exhausted, and physically, and they set out 15 miles, and they get to a brook. They get to the brook. They put their weapons down. They put their bags down, and they begin to drink water, splash themselves off, refresh, pick it back up. Let's go, because time is of the essence here. The longer they wait, the longer the men that took their families are getting farther and farther away, and they don't even know who it is. And they pick up their weapons, they pick up their bags, and they begin to go, and then 200 of the 600 men say, we're done. We're done. We're too tired. We're too exhausted. We don't trust the plan. It's not going to work. We're most likely going to die. We don't even know where we're going and who took our families. We're going to stay here where it's comfortable. And so they stay, and David and 400 men. Now, one-third of the army is left. 400 men set out, most likely making fun of the men behind calling them cowards and probably nervous because now they're way less in number and they don't know how many people they're going to encounter. Maybe in the minds of many, they're going on a suicide mission, but they need to try. And so they press off. It's hot. They're exhausted. And it's seemingly hopeless. And then all of a sudden, something really crazy happens. They find a half-dead Egyptian man. And so they pick up the Egyptian man and they take him over to David and, and David interrogates him right away. He doesn't do that, right? David takes his half-dead Egyptian man when time is of the essence, and there are more important lives to deal with than this man. David gives him water, gives him some of the precious food that they have. It's actually really good food. Nurses him and brings him back to health. And this half-dead man, who's been in the desert three days with no food and no water, and has been sick to top it all off, and is on the brink of death, comes back to life. And David understands what it's like to feel like this man, right? He's been running for 10 years in the wilderness. He knows what it feels like physically to feel like this man, emotionally, spiritually, to be left, to be treated as a problem, as an annoyance, and cast out. Because that's what happened to this man. He was left there because he was a problem. And David takes this problem, and he brings him back to health and shows compassion to him. And wouldn't you know it, this man was with the Amalekites, and he knows exactly where they're going. And he tells David and his men that he will take them, and he will lead them exactly to where they are. And so they follow him, and they go, and they, you can, they're crawling up the hill, you know, peering over the side, looking down the valley, and they see the Amalekites. They see their loved ones maybe tied up, and they're celebrating. They're singing songs of victory. 
they're drinking and they're probably eating turkey legs because that's what I imagine every time I imagine people. It doesn't matter the error of time. It's always a turkey leg. <laughs> and they're screaming and they're shouting and, and things are getting ramped up in the party. And the sun's setting and David looks over at his men at twilight and he says, it's time to go. We're going in, 400 of us. And they creep down the mountainside and they get into the village and they wipe out everyone except for 400 men that get away, which lets you know that there was a lot of men there. It was a huge army. If it's written in such a way as only 400 escaped, there was a lot of men there. David was massively outnumbered. And the 400 men ride off on camels full speed, which must have been funny to watch 400 men riding camels full speed. And David gets into the village, and they untie their loved ones, and they hug them, and they kiss them, and tears are streaming They're throwing David in the air and celebrating, and it says that nothing was lost. Not one thing. It says, nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. It must have been an incredible celebration. But we haven't even reached the climax of the story. The climax of the story is now that they've taken everything, they've got their families back, and they've got their treasure and their spoil back, and then some. And they begin to head home, and they get back to the brook Beshore, where the 200 men are sitting. Maybe their feet are in the water, they're drinking, they're hanging out, they're talking. What are we going to do? Where are we going to go? Most likely, David and those guys, they're dead. We're never going to see our families. We need to start over. And they begin to see people on the horizon. And they imagine... Oh, oh, they, grab their sword. Is this the people that took our families? Who is this? And as they get closer and closer and closer, they realize that it's David and the men and the families and a whole bunch of caravans and livestock. And they get up and they run and they chase them down and they find their wife and they find their children. They hug them and they kiss them and they are extremely emotional, patting the men on the back and saying, thank you. How can we ever repay you for doing this? And then something really interesting happens. The climax of the story hits. Verse 21, 1 Samuel 30. Then David came to 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow David and who had been left at the brook Beshor. And they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. And David came near to the people and he greeted them. Then all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered except that which that except that each man may lead away with his wife and children and depart this is fair right i mean these men are called worthless fellows i mean is that really fair they look at david and they say listen these men sat here and did not trust and did not go forward and they were too exhausted and they doubted and they sat at the river comfortable drinking water and relaxing and we put our lives on the line and we went with you and we trusted you david and we recovered everything And so they get their wife and their children back, and that's enough. They don't get any of the treasure because they didn't work for it. They didn't earn it. They didn't deserve it. Do you relate with that? I mean, a little bit of modern context. Maybe imagine you and nine friends start a company. You're going to start a company. It's going to be incredible. It's going to be amazing, very successful. You have mutual responsibility. You're all in it together, and you begin to press forward. And it's a hard road, you know, two steps forward, one step back, one step forward, two steps back. And then you reach a metaphorical smoldering village. The president, you you assume, 
that he has made a bad decision. And he needs to take responsibility because right now you've gone bankrupt and debt is piling up. And so he needs to take responsibility for this because it's his fault. And just before things get out of hand, the president comes before you and he says, listen, here's what we're going to do. We're going to give it one more shot. I need you to trust me. I need you to try one more time. I know we're tired. I know we're exhausted. I know it hasn't worked, but trust me. So you do, and you go forward, and then four of the ten of you decide we're done. We're too tired. We're too exhausted. There's better things for us to be doing with our time. This is too much of a sacrifice. It's never going to work. So they drop out, and only six of you remain, and you press on a little bit more. And against all odds, you get on Shark Tank. (laughs) And you get on Shark Tank, and you pitch your idea, and the sharks have a feeding frenzy. Pun intended. They love your company. They go crazy for it. They begin to bid each other up. Mark Cuban's making fun of this, you know, and they're going crazy. Mr. Wonderful, he's going nuts because he's seeing dollar signs. And all five sharks go in on your company, and now your company that was in bankruptcy and utter despair is worth millions upon millions upon millions. And you come back home, and you get back to the office, and the four men are there, and they congratulate you. And you write them a check, and you give them a check for the debt that they owed, They're free, they're clear, and they're good. And then the president gets up and says, we're going to share everything with these four men. Are you okay with that? Right? They didn't do anything. They sat. They were exhausted. They waited. They Literally, you're going to pull out your fairness card, and then you're going to pull out your earned versus deserved card, and then you're going to pull out your justice card, and then last card, common sense card. Right? (laughs) You see, David doesn't understand things like this. He doesn't see things like this. Here's what David says in verse 23. You shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. He has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. Who would listen to you in this matter? For as his share is who goes down into battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. They shall share alike. And he made it a statute and a rule for Israel from that day forward to this day. There's the climax of the story. David's intervention at the Brook Beshore. Where David is proclaiming pure gospel. These men and their families that David is taking charge of and leadership of were defined earlier in Samuel as being people who were distressed, in debt, and discontent. And David took them in and cared for them, and gave them purpose, and direction, and taught them about God's grace, and taught them how to pray, and had seen so many incredible things that God had done for them. And catastrophe wipes that all away, and the earn versus deserve card comes out, and now they don't want to share. They don't even realize that God gave them a half-dead Egyptian man that helped them find their families, and not only find them, but recover everything and then some. And David does not allow for them to run past that. He says, we're going to share everything with everyone. And not just with everyone, but with even more people. In verse 26, it says that David came to Ziklag and he sent part of the spoil to his friends, the elders of Judah, saying, here's a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. It was for those in Bethel and Ramoth of the Negeb and Jatir and Rer, and Sipmoth, and Estemoa, and Raquel, and the cities of the Jeremelites, and the cities of the Kenites, and Hormah, and Borashan, and Atak, and Hebron, 
for all the places where David and his men had roamed. And if you read that in personal worship, you're probably like, it was for those in Bethel and um, for all the men had roamed. But names mean something, right? David is naming all of the places that he has been with his men and their families and all of the people that have cared for him and shown him compassion or protection. And he is giving the spoils that he and his men have earned to everyone else. You know, David is many things. He's a warrior. He's a poet. He's very cunning. He's a strategist. But here we see in full spectrum that David is compassionate. Eugene Peterson says that David's passion was a community affair. It was compassion, passion for the community. You see, David cared deeply about others. That's why they were in Ziklag in the first place, because he wanted to keep everybody safe. So he left Israel and took them to Ziklag, where they could be protected. David is working out before us what it means to be human, or what it should look like, or maybe more particularly, what it looks like to be a believer in God. He feels a diverse amount of pressure. He faces diverse situations, so many ups and downs. He's, he's experienced a whole spectrum of emotion, right? Anger, resentment, abandonment, disappointment, confusion, doubt. But he's also experienced grace and hope and peace and joy and forgiveness. And David, despite everything, whether catastrophe or victory, he consistently in his life shows us something. He's driven to be faithful to God. He is consistently driven by faith and desiring to be faithful. He understands aspects of God and his love and his commands that I don't. And he lives them out in ways that I don't. You see, at the same time that this was happening with David and his men, we have a similar battle that ends very differently with Saul in chapter 31. Saul's fighting the Philistines. And verse 3 says, The battle pressed hard against Saul. And the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. And then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he greatly feared. He feared what would happen to killing the Lord's anointed. Therefore Saul took his own sword, and he fell upon it. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he fell upon his sword and died with him. You see, in chapter 30, David is pressing hard to find those who have been taken, who have been lost, and to rescue them. And the Philistines are pressing hard against Saul, looking to take him captive, or better yet, kill him. David places his life in God's hands and says, God, I don't really know how this plan's going to work, but I'm going to trust you, and I'm going to go with it. And Saul takes his life into his own hands, and he eventually dies by his own hands. David is blessed with the plunder of the Amalekites upon victory, And Saul, in defeat, his body is plundered by the Philistines. You see, the difference between David and Saul is striking. In 1 Samuel 8, Samuel warns the people of Israel, I know you want a king, but here's what's going to happen. Kings of Israel will rule by taking. That's exactly what Saul does in his life. Saul takes. In 1 Samuel 13, he takes matters into his own hands, Samuel is supposed to be the one that's supposed to initiate and to facilitate the sacrifice. But Saul says, Samuel is late, I'll do it, whatever. Saul takes from the f- food from the army in 1 Samuel 14 until he has avenged his enemies. 
1 Samuel 15, God rejects Saul because Saul will not follow his commands and listen to him because Saul decides to take his own life and decide how he will use it. 1 Samuel 17, Saul takes refuge in his tent as Goliath is consistently and continually blaspheming God in the community of faith. Saul continually seeks to take David's life over and over and over again, and he does succeed in taking the life of the priest at Nob. God has turned his back on Saul. It's not a problem for Saul because he'll go take a medium and he'll summon the, same, the, the spirit of Samuel to try to figure out what, how he can get out of the situation and save his own skin. You see, Saul is a selfish, self-important, arrogant, fearful, and deranged man by this point. He cares about himself. He cares about his agenda, his kingdom, his goals, his success. He has no room for compassion. He doesn't have any passion for the community. He removes everything that impedes his goal, including David, and he uses God for gain. Saul is remarkably human. <laughs> and then we have David. David initiates his kingship here in 1 first, in first Samuel 30 by giving. He gives to his people equally, and then he gives to Israel. He gives to the tribes of Judah as well. So we don't just see David giving in, in this one chapter. We see it throughout his whole life. David gives himself in faith to battle against Goliath because nobody else will. David gives himself to Saul as a servant, even though he's been anointed king. David gives an out to the priest, hoping to preserve their life. David gives refuge to a band of people, the people that are with him, that are called distressed in debt and discontent. And Saul, David gives Saul chance after chance after chance to repent. He gives freedom and redemption to the people in the city of Kaliah, even though it doesn't seem like a good decision for him to do so. David continually and consistently gives his life over to God and says, God, you take it where you want it to go. So the question is, is David remarkably human? Because David is the example for who we are to be, what we are to look like. That when we've experienced the grace and mercy and forgiveness of God, we should look like David. We should be compassionate, driven by faith, giving. He says, I said earlier, names are important. They keep us from abstraction and obscurity. And if you've been with us for the book of 1 Samuel, you know that the name David means something. You know that the name Saul means something because there's details and names that give it meaning. You have to have details to understand these obscure words. And the Brook Beshor gives us meaning and details for charity, generosity, and care. Because it doesn't just show us David. It doesn't just show us what David's supposed to look like, but it shows us our king. You see, Christ is so similar in many ways to David. As Matt said, he, David is a foreshadow of Christ. Christ just is way better. Christ comes into this world, right? And it says that he gathers people to himself. And the people that he gathers could be defined as distressed, in debt, and discontent. People that have done nothing to deserve his leadership or his love or his grace or his forgiveness. And he has a plan and his plan seems foolish. He's going to die. You're going to kill the king. And Christ presses on. And he dies. And then three days later, he rises from the dead and he vanquishes sin and death. 
And what does he immediately do? He seeks after his bride. He finds his family and he brings us together and he brings us back to him. And he says, I share everything equally. I share my grace and my forgiveness equally. And I share my treasure equally. It doesn't matter if you think you've deserved it or not. It doesn't matter what you've done or what you have done. I share equally with my family. And then he looks at us and he tells us that we're sent out not to passivity, but to action, to compassion. He tells us to make our passion a community affair. He tells us to give more than we take. He tells us to care about others, to serve others, to give to others, and not just those who deserve it. See, this is who we are to be as citizens of the king, as the church. Those who were distressed in debt and discontent, and yet we've, given, we've been given salvation and rescue. And that is done something to us to where we look to give the same to others. We were once half-dead Egyptians, and God brought us back to life. And when we meet people that are like that, we do the same. When we have opportunity to give to those who don't deserve it, we give and we care. Christopher Hitchens, a well-known atheist, wrote a book, God is Not Great. And he said something that I think is fair. I want you to be honest with yourself in this. He says, religious faith as evidenced by ordinary followers is the strongest proof that there is no God. The church in and of itself over history proves that this God of love and compassion is non-existent. Now, is that completely and utterly true? No. But is it somewhat true? Are we often more like Saul than we are David? If you're like me, you're going to say, yeah. And so the answer is, what do we do? Do we just kind of give up on church? We're always going to be terrible. We're horrible. It's harmful for the world. I think we can learn a lot from Martin Luther King Jr., who, in looking out at a racist South and a bunch of white Christians who were oppressing his people, did not say, look what Christianity has produced. Look at the church. He doesn't do that. He quotes Amos, and he says, Let justice roll down like waters, and righteousness a mighty stream. In the midst of catastrophe and oppression, Martin Luther King Jr. says, The answer is not to destroy the church and to reject Christianity. The answer is real Christianity. It's for the church to be awakened to who we have been called to be as Christians. That we've been called to be compassionate. And compassion isn't just a feeling. It's not sentiment. Those are different. Sentiment is when you watch Schindler's List and you're moved to tears, but you're not willing to associate yourself with people that are different from you. Or where you watch a promo video or a commercial about a third world country and it motivates you to maybe give $10, which is good. But you know you're called to go, but that's too risky. Or maybe when you look at the situation, the homeless in our city, and it breaks your heart to see the same people time after time at the stoplights, but it doesn't motivate you to do anything to help. Or maybe when you read passages in Scripture that, that show us the fate of those that don't believe in Christ and have rejected Him, and it makes you sick to your stomach to think about that, but it never moves something in you to actually talk to your family and friends and coworkers. You see, sentiment and, com- and compassion are very different things. Compassion is passion. It's action for the community. 
If you're like me, we're way too easily like Saul, where we are completely dedicated to the cultivation of ourself. And so the question is, what do we do? Do we just kind of write on a note card and put it on our car and in our bathroom, be more compassionate, tattoo it on our arm, have someone call us every day and tell us, be compassionate? I mean, what do we do? You know, I mean, none of those things are going to work. Maybe they help a little bit, but they're not going to work. The answer is not do more, try harder, buckle up our bootstraps, and we're just going to all be compassionate for a day. The answer is in Matthew 11, where Jesus says this, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. See, Jesus says, come to me. Give me everything, your anxieties, your fears, your doubts, your stress, your goals, your whole self. Give me everything, and I will take it. And I will take it off of you and I will give you rest. And not only will I do that, but I will also teach you and I will teach you gently what it looks like to be compassionate, to be generous, to be more like me, your king. It will not be a guilt-ridden process. It will be restful and it will be gentle. You see, all of us in this room, in one way or another, are sitting at the bank of Beshor, at the brook Beshor. We're sitting there with full of anxiety and fear and stress and fatigue, exhaustion and doubt and saying to ourselves, I'm not really willing to give this over to my king. That's a little too risky and it doesn't seem like it's going to pan out. But the good news for us is our king is at that brook too. He's there with us and he says to us, come to me. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are with us. That though we sit at the brook Beshore exhausted and tired and fatigued and anxious and fearful and doubting you honestly, that you're there with us. And you don't condemn us and pile guilt upon us because of our failures and our weakness, but you call us just to come to you to give you everything that we are and everything that we have and to learn from you, to learn what it means to be compassionate, to be like David, to be willing to share everything that we have, our time, our talent, our treasure with those in need. God, we were once half-dead Egyptians and you brought us back to life and you rescued us. How could we hold that in and not share that with others? Make us men and women of compassion. Make us a church of compassion through your grace and through your spirit. Help us to understand the difference between compassion and sentiment. Give us a passion for the community because we've experienced such powerful grace. It's the only response that we could give. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.